Open your Bibles, please, to John 17. Um, those of you who come here every week are thinking, we're not supposed to shake hands then, we're supposed to shake hands earlier. <laughs> well, hope that doesn't ruin your view of orthodoxy. Um, that's just a guideline. That's exactly right. But what we're going to talk about today is not a guideline, and it's connected to shaking hands. Um, I, I find it interesting how the Lord works uh, sometimes beyond my thoughtfulness. You know, I try to think what would be good to preach and what would be timely, and usually we pick a book of the Bible and work our way through a book of the Bible and uh, we were doing that for a couple of years, working through the Gospel of John, and uh, got up to chapter 17. And, and I know that chapter 18 starts into what we call the Passion Week, or the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and the suffering of Christ. So I thought, well, I'm going to save that until, until next year, and try to time it so we come into Easter you know, through those events, and that seemed to make sense. But I, but I thought, well, I'm not sure if I quite finished John 17, so I opened up my Bible and my notes, and sure enough, I've left a couple sections off of John 17. And as I looked at that, I thought, that is exactly what I need to talk about this week, following up our month of thinking on how does God save people? How are disciples made? Because there is a truth in John chapter 17 that is absolutely vital vital to us being effective as God's ministers in this community. Follow as I read from John 17, starting in verse 20. This whole chapter is a prayer of Christ. He says, I do not pray for these alone. That is not just the apostles that are gathered together in the upper room. I'm not praying just for these I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. As I thought about this text and my sermon, even today I realized, you know, the importance of this message goes beyond even making disciples. It goes out into our families, into our relationships as Christians, everywhere that we go, the world is consumed right now with trying to make peace. And every time we have a new president, there's a little glimmer of hope and uh, maybe a little progress made, a little regress made, and hope continues to spring eternal. And maybe we get a new president of the UN or a new secretary general and things, oh, we're going to do better now. And we can't. Mankind cannot get along. Rodney King's famous words, the fellow who was beaten by the L.A. police, and in the wake of that, he said, can't we all just get along? And the answer is no. And that's why this message from God's word is so important for us today, because what God says is this, we 
are supposed to be a shining example of the potential of getting along in Christ. And so I hope you'll understand today that disciples are only made by a church that is unified and working together. But even more than that, the witness of Christ to the world through your family or through this church depends on us working together. As we look at John 17, starting in verse 20, we see again that Jesus is praying here, and and you could read the whole chapter later and realize that, that the whole thing is a prayer. But what is so amazing here is Jesus prayed for us. Do you know that Jesus was thinking about you and you and you and you and you and every single one of us Jesus had us on his mind when he spoke those words. Do you ever think about Jesus praying specifically for you? He does. He has that ability because he is infinite in his ability. I've heard a number of people over the years say, well, I I don't pray about small things in my life because it just seems like God shouldn't be bothered. And, you know, that's... That's nice. That's, that's caring. But Jesus has the ability to pray for us. Do you know that Jesus talked about us more than once? Um, listen to this. At the end of the book of John, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me and have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Again, he's talking about you and me, and he says, there are people coming who will not physically see me, Thomas, like you have physically seen me, and they're going to believe. And he says, those people are going to be blessed in a special way because they have believed without seeing. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, other sheep, other than the ones he was ministering to at the time, other people, other people have I which are not of this fold, them also must I bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The fold he was talking about was the fold of the Jewish people who were his primary ones he came to reach. And he said, you know, there are other sheep that aren't Jewish. That's me, because I'm not Jewish as far as I know, and that's you. Jesus was aware of us, and he was praying for us. Now, there's something very important about this. We talked about it earlier in John 17, and it has to do with the power in Christ's prayer. Here's an example of it in John 11, when Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he says... Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He'd offered a prayer. He says, I'm thankful that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. Do you understand that the prayers of Christ are always answered completely? Isn't that amazing? And he's been praying for you, and for you, for you, and for all of us. That's one of the things he does all the time in heaven is he advocates for us. He is our lawyer in heaven. When Satan accuses us, he's there saying, no, no, my blood covers them. And and he is personally advocating for us in that situation. Now, what does it mean for unity, for Jesus to pray for unity It means that when Jesus prays for unity, it will happen. 
In Tukwila, we struggled for a year to get a building permit to build a parking lot. And it came right down to the last little bit. And we, had, we were trying to work out some little details. And we finally got this, this, this wording and so on. And when we took it to the folks at the city, they went, oh. You know, it was like everything kind of came together. And then they said, well, we'll, 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 we'll have to work that out. And it, it went on for two or three more weeks. And I had avoided doing this until then. But finally, I went to the, uh, I happened to be at an event with the city manager and the mayor. And I said, you know, we submitted this. We've worked through this. And this is, this is the problem. And this person seems to be kind of not giving me too good a service. And they said, we'll take care of it. Next day, your permit's ready. (laughs) When Jesus prays, God listens. You've got to understand that. And he prayed for our unity, for the unity of all believers. Look at verse 21. I'm praying that they all may be one that they all may be one as you, Father, are one, as you and I are one. There is the source of our unity comes from being in Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ. Now I understand that other scripture does talk about some distinctives in how God wants us to work out male-female relationships. But in terms of our essential existence in the body of Christ, we are all absolutely equal and one in Christ. You and I can understand some of the struggle with the male-female differences, but we cannot possibly understand how wide the gap was between Jews and Greeks in the time of Christ. I mean, the Greeks essentially were were non-Jewish folks who were non-religious in in many ways to our way of thinking. And the Jewish folks and them just did not get along at all. And of course, the idea of between slave and free. Today, we have employees and employers or business owners and workers. And there's kind of a gap between them sometimes. But this is between slave and free. Uh, Those of you who are not business owners here today would have essentially been owned by somebody else, most likely. Think about what that would mean, getting up in the morning and deciding what you're going to do. (laughs) Or getting up in the morning and getting your assignments from somebody else. And along comes Jesus, and he says, Now, in the body of Christ, there's not going to be ethnic difference. There's not going to be social strata difference. There's not going to be... Uh, human sexuality difference, we're all going to be one. We're all going to be one because we are all in Christ. Jesus said, I'm going to give them the unity that you, Father, and I have. And we read about that here in 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body, the body of Christ, of all Christians, is one and has many members, but all the members of that body, of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we've been all made to drink into one Spirit. Um, This is enlarged a little bit in Colossians 1. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the great truth. 
Look back at John 17, verse 21. The reason that we can be one is because the Father and Christ are one, and Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. We are all wrapped up together. Our unity has its source in the unity of the Godhead. Now, here's the question we need to ask. Christ said that all Christians are going to be together. And we look at that and say, well, we aren't all together here in Ferndale today. There's some folks up the road, some folks down the road. There's some folks down that way. There's some folks over that way. And then we go to Bellingham, and that's a whole other set of folks. Okay, And we say, Jesus prays and things happen, and yet is there unity in the body of Christ today? It's an important question to ask, and I think the answer comes in Ephesians chapter 4. You see, there is a universal expression of the unity of the body of Christ, and then there is a, a personal expression. We'll talk about that in a minute. But how is this unity expressed universally? Well, it's expressed this way. There is one body and one spirit, one body of Christ, one body of believers, and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Would you think with me a a minute about the true church, the true church of Christ in the world? The unity of the body of Christ is found in the reality of the essential beliefs and goals of the true church. While we fuss about the details and the organizational plans, we don't disagree about salvation or the person of Christ or the word of God. Only heretics disagree about these issues. And so in every true church in the world, the word of God is held up as the only rule of faith and living. In every true church in the world, God is proclaimed as Father, Jesus as Savior, the Holy Spirit as Empowerer. In every true church in the world, faith in Christ is taught as the only means of salvation. In every true church in the world, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. In every true church in the world, the reality of a Christ-infused life is taught and encouraged. In every true church in the world, the peace of God about the trials of life and the ultimate trial of death is taught and lived. Now, you could certainly go to a false church or a pseudo-church and find some aberrant teachings about all of these doctrines. But God has created unity in the body of Christ to such an extent that it has continued on with what we would call essentially today the mainstream evangelical church all around the world teaching and believing the same essential core doctrines. There is unity in the body of Christ. A few weeks ago I had cause to uh, meet and visit with the pastor of uh, Good News Fellowship. Young guy right out of seminary. He's uh, pastored a little bit somewhere else, but he uh, he came over and, and we talked, got acquainted a little bit, and and uh, talked about the business we needed to talk about. And then toward the end, he, he was asking about our doctrinal statement. And uh, and I said, well, I, I looked in my files. I said, I know it's here on the website. And I click, click, and there it is. And I just kind of scrolled through. To a pastor, one of the things he's looking for is how long it is, okay? Because he knows, you know, if you've read a few doctrinal statements, you know if it's longer 
then, then we're making a few more points. I mean, there's some that are pretty short. Ours is pretty long. And, uh, we, and we just hit some high points. And when we got done, he said, sounds like you read your Bible. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, I read my Bible. It sounds like you do too. And you see, we think of unity as everybody in one place at one time always doing exactly the same thing. That's uniformity. Unity is what we have in the broad church of Christ. You can go to Thailand today. You can go to Spain. You can go to all kinds of places. And the same things are being taught and believed and practiced by the true church of God. We have a universal expression of the unity that Christ is speaking here, speaking of here, and it has continued on for nearly 2,000 years. Now, where, this, where the rubber meets the road, though, for us as a church is what I'm choosing to call today the personal expression of this unity. And it comes to bear here in the body of Christ. Christ is praying for us to walk in unity, not uniformity, but to walk in unity. Listen to what Paul wrote about this unity. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I, I'm begging you, I'm really, I'm really working hard to ask you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is a very important phrase because here's what it tells us. We do not create spiritual unity. We cannot create it. We can only maintain it. Who created spiritual unity, class? Jesus. By one spirit were we all baptized into one body. God created the unity. Now, it's our job, it is commanded to us to keep it. To work at it, to endeavor, to endeavor, to give effort, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create spiritual unity. God does. When we became, we became unified when we were placed into the body of Christ. This is quite similar to the truth about how God works, how the Holy Spirit works in the average Christian or the, 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 uh, the normal Christian. When we get saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and he starts to empower the spiritual life. And what does God tell us to do? He says, don't quench that fire. Don't grieve that person. He never says, come to the altar and beg for the Holy Spirit to come in. He never says that. He says, the Holy Spirit is coming in and he's going to be active. And now you let him work by your righteous walk. When we walk in obedience as individuals, the Holy Spirit manifests his ministry to, through us. And as a church, as a group of individuals, we don't start his unity, but we cooperate with his work through obedient living to keep the unity. I'm hoping for a good stretch of weather, and according to the, according to the weather people, we're going to get it this week. I have a piece of lawn that is dirt and other things and needs to be turned into grass. And I would love to get little grass sprouts just up before the winter comes. And I know I should have done this a month ago. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Where were you when my yard needed raking? I don't know. 
built the, I built the wall, I built the fence, now I'm ready to plant the yard. But first, first I have to spray Roundup and kill all the weeds and the lousy grass and let it set for a few days so it doesn't kill the new seed. And then I've got to put some stuff in there and till it all up and put the good seed in. Then I'm going to have a decent lawn in that spot. That is exactly what God says we have to do to maintain the unity that he has created. And it starts right here with this verse. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so I would like us to look first of all at this. If I'm going to have a personal expression of unity, I have to, the fleshly passions that are with me must die in order for unity to live. I've got to put God's roundup on the weeds of my fleshly passions. And they start here. The first one is fear. What's that mean? It means this. It's easy to talk about people and problems to those who are not involved. But we need to be like David facing Goliath. He looked at that giant and said, I think God and I can tackle that. And he ran toward him, believing that God would help him. If we're going to maintain unity in our church, we have to talk about difficulties to the people who are involved, not to others. It's easy to talk to others. It's fearful to do what we should do. Another passion that has to die in order for unity to live is laziness. You see, it's much easier to do nothing or to do the wrong thing than to do the right thing. Digging out a sliver hurts, but letting it fester hurts more and more. When something is threatening to break up the unity, whether it's a small thing or a large thing, we've got to go after it. We're all lazy by nature. Yeah, I know some people are busy, 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 but we're still lazy about this stuff. And it's much easier to do nothing, but we've got to get after it. There's a third passion that that lives in our flesh, and it's disbelief. We don't think God will work through the process, but he has commanded. And so we have got to follow God's process, which we'll talk here in a minute. There's another passion that works in our flesh, and it's arrogance. This is an insidious thing. We don't want to enter into the godly ways of resolving differences sometimes because we don't want to risk finding out that we are wrong. Don't confuse me with the facts. See, if I go into a genuine time of resolution of a a disagreement, I might be wrong and I might need to change. So I'll just avoid that resolution completely. There's one more passion that lives in our flesh that has to die, and that's the passion of pride. Pride is the, in this setting is the power of having inside knowledge. I've got a hot, juicy one here. I've got the stuff. But if I go and resolve this, I won't have any more stuff. We like the power. And we've got to let it go. We've got to work to resolve. So those are the weeds we've got to dig out. Fear, laziness, disbelief, arrogance, pride. What are the spiritual patterns that have to rule in order for unity to live? 
Well, the first one is meditating on the truth. Philippians 4.8. Finally, my brethren, whatever things are true, go to the last phrase. Meditate on these things. The other night, Sue looked at the lights on the car as I drove up in the in the drove my car up in the garage. She said, "You got a light out," and it had a little indicator light on the dash. You know, I haven't seen some of these indicator lights light up. So this light's on there. It's got some hash marks, and I thought, well, that I probably have a light burned out. It's telling me I got a light burned out. And she said, "Yes, yeah, one of those on the bottom." My car has these little extra fog lights on the bottom. So I, I went to. I went to Leanna's store here, and she says, we don't have that light. So I went to the competitor, I went to Shucks, and oh yeah, here's the light. So I get it home, and I turn my lights on, and I get out and I look. Which one's burned out? And I thought, well, none of them are burned out. And I had Raul look at it, and Sue looked at it, and she goes, well, I think one of them was off the other night. And I said, well, that indicator light was on. It must have been saying that there's a light out. So... I did what, what's the last resort for men. I got the book out. <laughs> Get the book out of my car. And, uh, you know, turn to the page under lights. And, and there's that symbol, exactly the one that I saw. And it says, when this symbol is lit up, it means that your fog lights are on. <laughs> Push the button a few times and check. Sure enough, that's what it means. I went to Leanna's store, I went to Shucks, and I bought a light that I will be returning tomorrow, all because I assumed I knew what was wrong. Some of you that are more mechanically inclined than I are snickering, eh, Lutheran should have checked that book before he went and bought a light. <laughs> How many times have you assumed you knew what the truth was and you went off talking about it? And you didn't read a book first. That is, you didn't come and talk to that person involved to see if you actually knew the truth or if you had just assumed. We have to not assume we ever know the whole truth if we haven't really sat down with somebody and said, what's going on? So we've got to meditate on the truth. Number two, we've got to believe the best. 1 Corinthians 13, and I've put the word love in there because it's supplied earlier in the passage. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I never fully understood this verse as a young pastor. When I started counseling folks whose relationships had broken down, I began to understand one of the things we don't want to do in the restoration is to believe that the other person is really going to change and do the right thing. And yet it is a demonstration of godly love to believe the best. To believe what people are trying to do. We have to meditate on the truth and believe the best if we are going to maintain unity. Number three, we have to pray about all concerns. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 just simply says, pray without ceasing. The question we have to ask ourselves is this, do you pray first or talk to other people first about difficulties? Let me put it real plain. Do you, do you pray first or gossip first? 
And do you ask God if it would be okay to go talk to the people you're about to go talk to? If we really want to maintain unity, we have to be most concerned about God's work. We have to lay down our arrogance and our pride and pray. Do you pray first or anger up first? Maybe you don't go off and talk, but you get all wound up and you are. We need to say, God, help us. Help me to think right. Help me to do right. Number three, we have to check facts with the source. We've already been talking about that. And it goes right along with this from Matthew 18, excuse me, confronting sin. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him the sin. Matthew 7 says, judge not that you be not judged. And when I put that all together, it seems to me that if I have a problem, I need to go to somebody with an open mind and open hands and say, brother, sister, such and such happened. I saw this, I heard this, and I'm here saying, what's happening? What's going on? Talk to me about it. I'm not here saying, I'm going to tell you what's going on. I'm here saying, I want to check the facts. Now, if there's sin to be confronted, we need to confront sin. There is nothing, you know, I I suppose there are two extremes, although I've never heard of the one extreme in churches very much where we're just really confronting every terrible thing everybody does. The other extreme that seems to go on more so is we kind of just, oh, let's not talk about it. Oh, 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 that's so uncomfortable. Oh, that's hard. We're talking about tough stuff here. But if we don't work, if we don't endeavor to keep the the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, if we don't work at that, you know what happens to it? It breaks down. We have got to confront sin. You know, in Galatians 2, you could read this later, there's an example of Paul, the Apostle Paul, confronting the Apostle Peter. And it says he confronted him to his face. That's the words that's used there. Because he, and it says, because he was to be blamed. Essentially, Paul says he was living in sin. And his sin had to do with partiality towards some, some people and some doctrinal issues. And Paul said, hey, buddy, you are wrong. And Peter went, you know what? You're right. And there was reconciliation and there was change and growth and progress. There has to be a confronting of sin. But just as there can be a confronting of sin, there can also be a covering of offenses. Proverbs 17.9 says this, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Uh, You know, the classic example of this that I always share with couples when I'm doing premarital counseling is, is squeezing the toothpaste. Let's take a survey. How many of you squeeze the toothpaste in the middle of the tube? You just pick it up and squeeze it. Okay. How many of you squeeze it from the end very carefully? Yes, you're all right. Thank you. <laughs> I was talking about this one time in a class, and a, and a fellow back there who was very fastidious in his life, and he had a job that required it, he says, it says on the tube, for best results, squeeze from the end. <laughs> now, Is that something that needs to be confronted as sin? No. No. Is that something that should be covered between two loving people and just say, hey, you know what? 
you know. You can do what we did. We all have our own tube of toothpaste in our house, you know. <laughs> Is there stuff like that in the church that we just need to say, you know what? I do not need to get that wound up about this. Yeah, I prefer this and they prefer that. And they're in, they had the opportunity to make this plan and make this choice. So I'm just not going to worry about it. I am going to let love cover a multitude of sins. Now, if it's a sin sin, I mean, if it's really a clear sin, we can't let that go in the body of Christ. But if it's just a difference where maybe I have a preference and you have a preference and, and, and we say, you know what, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let it go because I know that the unity of the body of Christ is more important than me getting my way on every single thing. The last thing in my list, and you know, I just tried to put down a few thoughts that I think are scriptural here. The list could have been longer or could have been shorter, but it's cooperating genuinely. We have several examples in the New Testament of churches working together to solve problems. The leaders led, the servants served, plans were made and approved, and the ministry went forward. Now get this, and I hope you understand this today. There is nothing ungodly with a good discussion of relevant biblical truth that ought to be affecting decisions we need to make. There's nothing wrong with having that good discussion. Please do not interpret my sermon in any way today to be saying, now look, stop making suggestions. No, absolutely not, much more so. What I want to say today is start working through or keep working through. I'm not preaching this because there's a particular problem. I'm preaching this because this is in John 17 and Jesus prayed it for us. That means he wants it to be true of us. And I think right now we have a fairly high degree of unity, but God says, keep it, endeavor to keep it. And, and so we need to cooperate genuinely. We need to work together. If we have differences, we need to bring them up and discuss them in a godly way. Nothing ungodly with a good discussion. But with the goal of arriving at the best unified plan we can find. Now, there's an importance to this, and it's right here in John 17, verse 21 and verse 23. Jesus repeated it. And if you've never seen this, boy, you, I, I hope it will get burned into your mind. I'm praying that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Down to verse 23, I in them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He says, look, the world is not going to believe that Christianity is real and that I am real unless you can manifest true unity. And what does it mean when God repeats something in such a brief matter of time in the Scripture? It means he is really concerned about it. This is very much, uh, very close to this phrase here. By this, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I want to read an article to you today, part of an interview, with a fella whose last name I've never heard pronounced, so I, don't, I just have to take a stab at it. Tulian 
Chavidian. Here's the part you will know. He's Billy Graham's grandson. And he started a church down in Florida near the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And uh, he is, uh, for those of you that understand this, he's in the Reformed tradition, which, of course, Coral Ridge is as well. Coral Ridge is Presbyterian. And, and uh, he started this church and had a, you know, a little bit of a contemporary flavor to it. Well, in time, uh, after some time, uh, the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian, James Kennedy, uh, went to be with the Lord. And they needed a pastor. And so they gave some thought, looked around. They said, why don't we merge our two churches and you become the pastor? And so they talked and worked through that, and, and they finally said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And the vote to, uh, to merge and to call him as pastor was a very high percentage vote, 90-something percentage, 90-something percent. And so all's well and good uh, for a while. And I'm just going to say Tulian. I'm not going to continue to, mass, uh, to ruin his last name. Tulian survived an attempt Sunday. This is a couple of weeks old. He survived an attempt Sunday by dissident church members to remove him as senior pastor of the 2,500-member Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The daughter of the late D. James Kennedy, Tulian's predecessor, was among six Coral Ridge members who circulated a petition calling for the new pastor's ouster. Kennedy, who founded Knox Theological Seminary, a political advocacy organization, and several popular broadcasting programs, served as Coral Ridge's first and only pastor from 1960 until his death in 2007. With Tulian's hiring in March as the second pastor in the church's history, the South Florida congregation he founded merged with Coral Ridge. He spoke to Christianity Today, who wrote this article. Conflict seems to be everywhere. Uh, This is the uh, question that's being asked to him. Conflict seems to be everywhere, from the debate over national health care to Kanye West interrupting Taylor Swift on the stage at MTV's Video Music Awards. Given the high-profile dispute at Coral Ridge, how do you persuade the world that the church is any different? And here's his answer. I'm not sure that the difference between the church and the world is the absence of conflict. We are all fallen people in a broken world. The difference is how we respond to conflict and how we recover from conflict. My hope and prayer is that here at Coral Ridge, we will respond to this conflict in a way that demonstrates for the watching world the reconciling power of the gospel. Here's another question. If you were an unchurched person reading about dissident church members trying to oust their pastors, how open would you be to seeing Christianity as the answer for your life? And the answer is not very open. Francis Schaeffer once said that division inside the church gives the world the justification they're looking for not to believe. This conflict ensued because those who had a grievance did not come to me or the leadership of the church, but they took it to the street. They did not follow Matthew 18. As a result of not handling their grievance or their complaint biblically, conflict ensued. And we gave the world the justification they're looking for not to believe. And you know why they were so worked up? Because he wears a suit and tie, not a robe. And because he doesn't preach about politics and a few other things like that. Nothing of real substance. 
But do you understand? They just said, we can get this guy removed. And by the way, they did not succeed. But they did not handle this biblically. They did not want real change and growth and progress. They were not concerned for the overall health and and benefit and ministry of the body of Christ. They just wanted their way. And this is only one of the articles about this. There were articles in the secular newspaper down there, several of them, because it's that big a news. Will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? This truth of the unity of the body of Christ comes right home to the Lord's Supper for us today as much as it does any other part of the ministry. See, you're really familiar with part of the truth about the Lord's Supper, but there's another part of it that you haven't heard about too much. And it starts in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Do you understand what that means? He said, when you come together for church, people go away in worse condition than when they came. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, they were coming and eating the Lord's Supper, but he says, really, this is not a a proper way to eat the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, for in eating... Each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now you have to understand that when they had the Lord's Supper, they had a meal because that was the tradition coming out of the Jewish uh, belief system. They had a meal together, and then this was like the tail end of the meal. This was the, the spiritual commemorative part. The other part was kind of a fellowship activity. And he says, you come and eat, and you each eat your own food to the extent that there are some people who are hungry and other people who are drunk. In other words, some people have eaten and drunk so much they're going, oh, they got that Thanksgiving thing going on. While there's another brother standing over here hungry. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? And shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This, do this as often as you do, you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Therefore, therefore goes all the way back to verse 17. Therefore, whoever eats of this bread and drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the body and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
Now, if you've been in church a long time, you know that we always talk about the fact that before you receive these elements, you need to confess your sin. If there is any that's, that's hanging on, you need to be right with God. Don't eat, don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner. But do you know what the specific sin he was talking about is? Disunity. One is sitting over here eating a big old meal, and he doesn't give a hoot and a holler about that hungry poor guy over there. And he said, that's wrong. He said, don't you... He said, the sin here is to not discern the Lord's body. And this is where we have to expand our normal, realistic, touch-it-all-the-time kind of thinking to say, what is the Lord's body? It's all Christians of all time. It's not just the Lord's body like the Lord hanging on a cross. It's the Lord's body. He says, if we come and we have, we have divisions and, and, and ugly stuff going on with Christians, then we're not fit to receive this because this is a remembering of the Lord's body. And he uses that metaphor of body to say all of us are in this body together. Did it ever occur to you that the failure to pursue unity is just as much a sin as lying? Did it ever occur to you that your attachment to your own desires instead of helping the ministry could single-handedly slow down the work of God of making disciples. Wow, that's a scary thought. The chief sin that was making them unworthy to partake of the Lord's Supper was divisiveness, the lack of real experiential unity in the church. As we receive the Lord's Supper today, I want to encourage you to remember his body, to love the Lord's body, not just the body that paid for your sin, but the body of Christ of which we are part of. May God help us to honor that body by our pursuit of unity as well as by our worship here today. The worship team is going to come and sing, lead you in singing a song that uses this double reference to the Lord's body. The song is called, How Beautiful is the Body of Christ. And the first two verses talk about the beauty of, of the person of Christ, even as he died to pay for our sins. And the last two verses talk, though, about this body of Christ. And I pray that you will think about these thoughts and about your place in pursuing the unity of God and keeping that unity as we sing together.